welcome to the latest episode of the Race IndyCar podcast brought to you from St. Pete by me, Jack Benyon, and my Boulder-based co-host, J.R. Hildebrand. There's no shortage of things to talk about this week. JR, anything you want to touch on before we do a rundown of the action? Uh, no, man, just excited to excited to see some IndyCars back on track. Uh, it's it's ni- nice and early in the year and uh, plenty, plenty that we're left with after this first weekend to look forward to, I think, in the upcoming races. So without further ado. <laughs> so as usual, at this point of the pod, we outline what's happened just in case you've missed out on the action. In the first race of the season, Scott McLaughlin took a shock pole position for Team Penske at the beginning of just his second IndyCar season. In the race, the rapidly degrading soft tyre led to some drivers trying a three-stop strategy instead of the usual two. But McLaughlin remained committed to the two-stop, and one of the underpinning factors of his win was his rapid pace, even 20 laps into the first stint on the tyres, while many of his rivals' tyres turned to jelly. I think some of them have been going off after like five laps. So for McLaughlin to be delivering like race-leading pace 20 laps into the race, along with uh, you know only a couple of other drivers like Marcus Ericsson, was really impressive. Having crashed in practice, Alex Pillow started eighth, but chipped away at his race. And he leapt up a handful of places in the first stop, thanks to epic pit work emerging as McLaughlin's closest rival on that strategy. He undercut McLaughlin by one lap at the final round of stops, and McLaughlin came out mere yards ahead. He extended a two-second lead, but backmarker Jimmy Johnson erased that, and then the battle in duo caught Devlin De Francesco with just two laps to go. But luckily for McLaughlin, he held on, fell out of his car in victory lane, drank a shoey, and got tearful, having not seen his parents in New Zealand since January 2020, and was able to FaceTime them in victory lane. So, JR, can you try and explain just how amazing this win was based on the fact that Scott's barely raced any single seaters, uh, you know, just a handful of Australian Formula Ford uh, before his supercar career started. And then now he's starting his just his second season in IndyCar by winning a race that threw pretty much absolutely everything IndyCar historically can throw at a driver. Well, I think, I guess to me, this is in some respects, it's, it's incredibly impressive just when you, you know, when you put it that way, kind of thinking about the context for where he's come from compared to where basically everybody else outside of Jimmy Johnson has come from in their careers. Um, but uh, at the, at, like having said that, I guess this is the promise that we were sort of ec- expecting, I guess, from Scott, you know, you, you look at, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a real believer that if you can excel at any, in any particular genre or category or discipline or however you want to kind of think about that in motorsports, that, uh, given the right attitude, given the right kind of tools, um, you know, given the right way of looking at things that you can, you know, that a lot of, a lot of it is, is less, it, it's less technique in a particular way. And it's more sort of mindset and just how you extract, how you extract the most out of yourself in the car. And I mean, I, I think back to the Coda preseason test last year, um, Scott was, I don't, I don't recall at the end of the day, whether he was quickest or like second or third quickest or something. But, um, I remember getting texts from other drivers. I, I, cause I was curious. I was like, is this like, was there some kind of weird, was the track evolving and somehow there was just a time of day thing that he was on stickers and you know, whatever. And, um, a couple, I, so I texted a couple of guys and they were like, no, I was just, hundred percent legit. Like he just went straight to the top of the sheets out of, you know, at Coda, like a place that, 
is for all intents and purposes, like a pretty difficult track. There's nothing easy about it. You got to get the car to work right, but you got to really get the most out of it. It's not like being, being the fastest guy at the end of a test day at Sebring where things are changing all the time and it's super tight because it's a short lap anyway and all that kind of stuff. So I guess to me watching him last year, I was, you know, by the end of the year last year, between you and I, I was probably a little bit more, not critical, but just, um, I was slightly less impressed with how the sort of second half of his season went in particular. Um, you were cutting him a little more slack than I was, I guess. But, uh, you know, this is, I think the reason that I felt that way about his season last year was because I've felt like from when he came over here, this is what he's here to do. He's here to show us that he can do this. And when you think about his experience in supercars, I would say arguably among the other most competitive championships, and you could make an argument, frankly, that supercars is at least as competitive at the top as IndyCar is just in terms of the talent level in that championship guys that have been there, won championships, won races, won the big races, all that kind of stuff. When you look at the IndyCar grid, you look at it in the same way. How many Indy 500 winners are there? How many former champions are there? And all of those guys are racing for good teams. Supercars is very much the same way. Um, you know, the, his development and his, of, of his attitude and his mindset to be in those super high pressure environments in races that they're your team and your sponsors and you and your family, because there's history in those places and all that kind of stuff like that. Everybody really cares about a lot. Um, he's, he is prepared for this. He has the tools for this among those things that do translate between different disciplines and different cars. And so to me, this is, uh, did I expect this to happen on, on week one this year? No. But uh, am I surprised that it happened at some point? Also, not at all. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just super exciting, frankly, to, to know now that we've got another, another driver in that mix of the best, the best guys at the top of the field driving for a great team. So, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of things to point out maybe about the drive itself. St. Pete is definitely a place you mentioned kind of like, the, hanging onto the tires and all that kind of stuff. St. Pete's definitely a place that we've seen the car that is out in front in clean air, um, having a little bit of an easier time doing that kind of stuff. So there's, you know, in, in kind of picking apart his race, you know, there are some components of it that by being the leader, he was in, he was in a good spot. And, but I think that that also just speaks to, you know, he's, he, he talked about at the end of the race there, him, him having some nerves over those last few laps, particularly catching up to lap cars and, and having to deal with that. But I think it's also worth just remembering that particularly for these guys that have a lot of experience leading races, leading from pole, getting off once they get comfortable back in that spot, maybe, it, you know, it's been a year, it's been a year and some change for Scott since he was doing that in supercars. But once that clicks back into place, like that's your favorite spot to be. I mean, from the outside, sometimes you look at the leader and think, oh man, they're like under, they're under the most pressure because they're leading the race because they could throw it away and lose it. No, like when you're leading a race like this, you're just sitting there thinking like, yeah, I'm comfy. Cause I'm like burying everybody and everything's going well. You have that feeling in the car. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, a dangerous thing for everybody else that Scott's now got a feel for that in the Indy car. I think uh, really good to pick up on on those points, Jar. And I guess the 
the the win was so impressive because it contained everything that you need to to win a race in IndyCar at the moment. His outlaps were phenomenal. Um, his inlaps were phenomenal. He looked after the tyres. You know, he, he he didn't get put off by the fact that there was three kind of um, three strategies going on in the race. And at one point he was, you know, well back in the field. You know, we've seen that derail other drivers who've led races before and then, uh, you know, have kind of undone it by themselves because they've they've not kind of identified that they're still in the right place and, and still doing the right thing, which is obviously what happened to, to Scott. But I think just going back to last year, it's I think a lot of it was was a mental challenge for him trying to overcome the fact that he'd moved to this new series and not to think that Scott underestimated the challenge that he was going to face in IndyCar, but he's gone from being, you know, without doubt the top star in his championship, someone, you know, who's favorite to win polls and and, and win races every single week in, in his championship. And he's come into IndyCar where, you know, that's not been the case and he's had to accept that he's the rookie and he's got a lot of learning to do. And I think mentally over the course of last season, that was a big challenge for him because, he knows he's got the ability and he knows he's got the, the fundamental skill to be able to do this. It's just bringing all these things together, which is what we saw this weekend. All of these things, the outlaps, the tyre management, the, the the managing the strategy over the course of a race, all these kind of things that maybe he struggled with last year that, that didn't come naturally to him while he was still learning. Uh, you know, we've seen those uh, displayed now. and It's really interesting to actually look and sat down with Ben Bretzman, his new engineer for, for 2022, just after qualifying after the pole lap, just to kind of break down some of the things that, that Scotty does well. And the fundamental thing there was that, that Ben got across was there's, there's not really like a, you know, a particularly distinctive style that Scott has in terms of how he likes to drive the car. He just fundamentally knows what what he needs out of the car to to extract the pace. And he's very adaptable, someone who, you know, if he's got understeer, if he's got oversteer, he's, he's able to to cope and, and, and deliver the lap time in the car. So I think what we've seen over the last weekend is just so many of these things tying together into into one weekend. So many of the skills that he's learned and so many of the things that we know he's capable of doing all coming together over over the course of a weekend and, and him just displaying that, not only that skill, but also that, that mentality that we know he has from supercars where, you know, he's basically made a living out of leading races from the front over there and has, has been able to, to replicate that now in IndyCar. Now he has the confidence to, to, to the confidence that he's able to do that. So you've been on the ground this weekend. I think one particular supporter of Scotty's win kind of caught your eye. Uh, can you uh, divulge? Yeah, really impressed with, with Chevy this weekend. Uh, we we talked a lot about them on the preseason pod. Obviously, you've got some great insight into to what they've been doing. And I think the the fundamental aspects of what's happened here is that you know, Honda for so long has had everything in-house and has been working towards the this sum of the parts approach that we talked about last week where they're working on all aspects of the car, whether it's the aerodynamics or the, the engine itself. It's a it's a whole team effort to get the best performance out of the car. And, and we know Chevrolet have been doing this for a while, but I think they've put a particular emphasis on being better at this, um, you know, for 2022. And also, I think there was a point uh, last season where, Chevrolet kind of spoke to the teams and, and and kind of identified the fact that they need to work with the teams a little bit closer to to really extract the the absolute maximum out of the the performance of the car for, for 2022. So Chevrolet have turned up at, at St. Pete with a with a really strong package. Um Scott was really keen to to kind of push how much more drivable the car has been over the course of the previous weekend. And we know from previous years they are that the the kind of drivability is the thing that the Honda drivers um tend to be really happy with and the Chevy drivers are usually struggling a little bit with. Chevrolet brought some some new maps this year and, and and just gave their drivers a little bit more flexibility for for this race. And you know on, on a track where there's um you know each type of camber there's there's change in surfaces it's a, it's a tricky track and to have that just that extra 
ability really to to be able to switch things up with the with the mapping and, and things like that has really helped the the Chevrolet teams this weekend. And I think it became as maybe a bit of a surprise to to at least some of the teams um, that they were going to get so much from Chevy for for this race. Not that, not that they weren't expecting to be you know improving in performance this year, but just that they were given so many options to to switch things up. And it took a little bit of time in in practice, I think, for the for the teams to really adapt to it and and, and get on board with uh, the options that they had in front of them. But it definitely helped. Um, and, and and we saw with uh, with Penske what they were able to deliver over the course of the weekend and they were very um very complimentary of uh, chevrolet's assistance there yeah i think that i i texted um the chevy indycar program manager rob buckner over the weekend and i said i think it was after qualifying and i said if if drivability was my drivability in on-air interviews from chevy drivers was my drinking word i'd be hammered by now, <laughs> um, because it was definitely a topic of conversation, but I wanted to just mention a couple of things that you, you know, if you were watching the interviews or watching races, watching Peacock over the course of the weekend, listening to, or sort of reading through the comments that drivers were making, uh, one of the things in particular that stood out to me that I thought maybe the, the average sort of fan might not completely understand or pick out is this concept of micro sectors over the course of the track. So I think, I think Scott maybe had mentioned, after qualifying or, or maybe, maybe after the race that, you know, they've, they've seen an improvement in some of the micro sectors on the circuit that they've traditionally, you know, the Chevy teams have traditionally struggled in. And so that's like these little parts of the track, little parts of the segment, you know, when you, when you get the session reports, you know, the track's usually broken up into, you know, depending on the length of the track, like eight to 10 or 11 different segments. And so you're kind of able to break down all right, in this corner, in this particular section, sometimes there's sort of combinations of corners or they're like a sector of the track that's three or four corners all linked together. You get an idea just comparing yourself to the other teams, um, the other cars, you know, how you stack up in each different individual area of the track. So you use that as a mechanism with your engineers and, and everybody else on your squad to kind of, you know, hunt down where are we missing the most lap time? Does that match up with how the car feels in those places? Usually it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you're surprised by, man, it really didn't feel great here, but we're actually okay. So maybe that's just a track thing. And so you start, you know, it's, it's a part of the process of elimination in some respects to figure out where you need to you know, improve your, improve your setup or improve your driving or whatever that might be. Um, within those segments, you can also sort of pick out much smaller parts of those segments. Um, it's a little bit harder to do, but particularly HPD and Pratt and Miller kind of have an ability to dig into those things a little bit deeper. And that historically over the last handful of years, Chevy, particularly on street circuits, um, has not been quite as good in that just initial punch off of corners. And so um, I think that, and I don't know this for a fact, I didn't ask anybody about it over the course of the weekend, but when that term got brought up and kind of got brought into the the discussion. I do think that that's what Scott was talking about um, was just they've see, they're seeing a little bit of an improvement in how the car just initially gets off the corner and that that's has nothing to do with power or torque. It's literally just can you actually put the power to the ground in that particular segment? More torque helps. You know, there's been some discussion about maybe the Honda over, you know, a period of time being a slightly torquier engine, whereas the Chevy has been a little peakier. Um, but, you know, those things combined, you know, in particular, if that's the case, then uh, a little bit of additional drivability, just softening up 
how that power is delivered just in those kind of phases of the corner where there's still turning and acceleration at the same time. Jack, like you mentioned, a, a track like St. Pete, it's really important um, in two places coming off of, I guess, turn seven um, out of the out of the kind of tight section of the track because it is really off camber right up against the wall, kind of that the corner that you we saw a bunch of accidents through practice, um, laying the power down there and particularly coming off the final corner, that hairpin coming onto the front straightaway, both, at, you know, you, you want to be able to be good there to be able to make passes, but in the context of the St. Pete race, it's at least as important. Honestly, I think it's more important just as in a defensive position, you know, if, if you're leading the race, if it starts and restarts, all those kinds of things to be able to have a really strong, solid acceleration off that corner without getting wheel spin too early in the corner. Uh, that is something that I think that Chevy teams in particular have struggled with those types of scenarios. And so um, that's just a little bit more context for, for how that all shakes out. So Joe, we should go through the field a bit more and talk about some other drivers. So uh, behind Alex Plow, who managed to, to bring it home second, we had Will Power, who had a great start to the season in third, head of the Andretti drivers, Colton Herter and Roman Grosjean. Props to Herter, who had a fuel hose issue and had to save fuel at the end. Um, I spoke to Nathan O'Rourke briefly after the race, and he reckoned that a podium was was definitely possible for, for those guys if that sort of trouble hadn't hit them and Roman Grosjean coming back from a huge practice crash with Sato I wanted to get into this with you a little bit JR because it's a I suppose maybe an unusual rule for some fans who don't follow IndyCar that closely and, and maybe tuning in to, to maybe get an idea of how Roman's getting on obviously the timing line uh, at some street circuits and road courses gets moved ahead of the start finish line so what you get is a, a shorter outlap for the drivers um, and also the drivers are able to to head straight into the pits after they finish their lap which means they're not sort of trundling around on the racing line holding people up or or, or causing general traffic so it's a it's fundamentally it's a brilliant rule when it's when it's used properly i think um, i'm sure um the people who maybe watch formula one every week and see some of the trouble that happens in practice there with sorry in, in qualifying there will will really like this rule but the problem where it where it can be a bit uh, of, of, of trouble is where the, the line sometimes comes in a problematic place and at St. Pete at the weekend we saw a few incidents where drivers were stacked up at the last corner waiting to start a lap and it's uh, a blind corner at the end of a, a straight with a kink in the middle um, obviously a heavy braking zone and somewhere where if there's a lot of cars gathered waiting to start a lap then it can be quite problematic and I think I'd, I'd written on the race that I thought Roman should have braked earlier and, and should have spotted what was happening at the corner there uh, a little bit quicker. But at the same time, you know, he shouldn't, he shouldn't be reaching five or six cars sat on a racing line on a, on a 90 degree corner uh, without any sort of notice. So what do, what do you make of this rule? And uh, it, is it just a, a simple case of maybe moving that time in line to, to just before the braking zone on the straight, or is it a case of moving back to the, to the start finish line there? I'm interested to get your thoughts on this whole thing. It's really hard to say. I mean, I, th I think in, in a general sense, it's something that we just get used to in terms of where the timing lines are. It's usually right before the last corner. I, I, sh I take that back at some circuits. It's, it's not immediately before the last corner. It's a couple of corners ago. Um, so there is some variability, I guess, in terms of where the timing line is at St. Pete. I think to your point, you'd have to move it before, you know, like a few corners prior before the left at the end of the straight, uh, before turn 10. So that's, you know, that maybe is a little bit, you know, a little bit too significant of a, of a move. Um, it's bit, you'd, you'd be doing that just to avoid this exact 
situation. Um, I think in Roman's case, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always a little bit, um, willing to chalk these things up to just situational, you know, blunders, I guess, to some, to some degree, like it certainly wasn't Sato's fault. Um, he's just sitting, he's like kind of a sitting duck and IndyCar particularly, I mean, and this happened in practice in a way that I think it, it's less likely to happen during qualifying when you've got fewer cars on track, you know, in practice, when you do have 26 cars or whatever it is out there, like that's a lot of cars stacked up on a very short track and the street circuits, you know, the, particularly the IndyCar street circuits, like they're, it's narrow back there. Like it's maybe you can fit three cars wide kind of, um, if they're all going slow and they all know that each other are there, but, um, I think this is honestly a, a, a situation where if I'm, if I'm Roma, I'm, I'm sort of thinking like, man, I wish that I'd have gotten a little bit of a heads up from the team that, you know, I mean, I, I, I as a driver, you know, not, not to be like blaming it on the team or something from, from being Mr. Driver guy. But, um, I do think that it's something that they, they can give you a little bit of a heads up. Like they have the marching, what we call the marching ants. Like they just have the GPS, tracking on all of the cars going around the track. Um, you know, they've got different camera angles of different, you know, of, of different places on the tracks up on the timing stand. Um, that is something, I guess at, at a bare minimum, if I'm the team going forward, I'm thinking a little bit more about making sure that, uh, if my guy is on a flyer and it doesn't seem like everybody else is up to speed to, uh, see if I can give them a bit of a heads up. Uh, but it's, it's a unique, it's sort of a unique set of circumstances. I, I doubt that IndyCar will change anything at St. Pete and uh, a learning experience for certainly Roman. I think his team to some degree, because it does end up affecting them. If there's anything that the two of them can do together to communicate, have a little bit more communication in those kinds of situations, that's probably the the right solution going forward. I think Mr. Driver Guy is the best nickname you've given yourself on the podcast so far since we Mr. started. Mr. Driver Guy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one aspect of the race, um, there was a number of contenders who were properly screwed over by traffic um, on that three-stop strategy. So uh, I guess Scott Dixon was the, the one who avoided it after his second stop and was able to, to recover to eighth place with we should say some absolutely rapid driving and a really good job. It, it wasn't just that he missed the, that he, that he missed the, the kind of the, the pile up in, in, in strategy there. He, he, he did it through pace as much as anything, but a number of drivers who may have done the same thing were, were kind of pinned behind Jimmy Johnson for, for many, many laps in the middle of the race there. I guess those included Pato Ward, who'd qualified 16th after clipping the wall and qualifying. What an excellent start that included wheel banging with Simon Pagino through the, the kind of intricate areas of the track. And he ran ninth on his first lap, which was you know, so impressive. The strategy wasn't right after that. And uh, he was caught in traffic, as as we kind of alluded to. Felix Rosenquist in the other hour McLaren SP car was basically nowhere after qualifying 21st when he blamed the tyres coming in too quickly on not being able to put the lap together. And he finished 17th in the race while Pato was 12th. JR, I was kind of interested to get your thoughts on the team here. And, you know, is that the, exactly the kind of weekend that Aaron McLaren SP needed to cut out and that we've seen from them kind of over the last two seasons and it, it kind of points to to the same kind of problems being in place, not kind of managing weekends properly? I guess I'm I'm hesitant to take that harsh of a perspective on it after the first weekend. I do th- they're I'm sure they're not excited about the way this the, the way that this all worked out. Um you know, they're, but they're also not the only ones who had trouble in qualifying and and kind of couldn't couldn't manage to find their way or you know pick their way out of it during the race. So 
I think that it's, it's certainly for them, not how they would have wanted to kick things off. Uh, there's clearly some areas where they can make improvements over the course of the weekend, maybe a bit of just listening to the comments. It felt a bit like maybe, you know, they were not, you know, not trying too hard in the first weekend, but maybe too excited, you know, not quite in mid season form in terms of just being, being completely in the swing of things. Even if, even just listening to the driver comments kind of, you know, Pato obviously made a mistake uh, before he was able to really even get with it. And Felix had the tires come in too soon. You know, maybe that's maybe a little bit of that is being overly aggressive to make sure that he's in that window prior to, you know, the, the tire situation caught a number of people out. So like I said, I'm, there are some, there are some intricacies to how this all worked for them that, you know, I'm willing to, to just chalk up to, you know, it being it being the first weekend and there being enough variability in how the weekends go, not everybody is going to get it right. And these guys just sort of didn't, they weren't on the right side of that fence. Uh, I do think that there were just to speak about sort of the strategies as over the course of the weekend, it ended up basically just turning out that none of the three stop strategies worked. I mean, the Dixon Dixon in particular sort of made it work basically by going long on the second two stops, which is not normally what you do on a three stop. Normally you'd, you'd kind of try to be early on the stops, try to put yourself in a position that you catch, you can catch a yellow at the end of the race and be able to get back on strategy or kind of close some of those gaps. Uh, Dixon took the alternate approach to that, which was after that first yellow basically erased any, advantage or any kind of potential advantage that the three stoppers would have. He just decided to go long and that got him some clean air by doing that. The rest of the three stoppers, you know, that was like new garden, Kirkwood, um, Rosenquist, Pagano. There was a bunch of guys that just all, you know, they all went from being kind of at the tail end of the top 10 to all of them being outside the top 15 or 14 or 15 and just stuck there for the entire rest of the race, because there was too many of them that were all on the same strategy, like, and all pitting within a lap or so of each other that all would get caught in traffic. And then once one car gets caught in traffic, even just for a couple laps, kind of to your point, everybody gets stuck in that same traffic and you're not right. You know, to make the three stop work, you have to be able to run the pace. And it just turned out that they, they couldn't because they were, they were stuck. And so uh, that was a, as much a strategic thing, I think, in terms of where Dixon ended up than necessarily him doing anything, you know, a, appreciably different in the car in terms of being able to run the lap. Um, but to get back to Aero McLaren SP, in the end, it's going to be a weekend to forget for them. Maybe some some things that they can bring out of it. Pato's first lap was extremely impressive. I still haven't seen onboard and I'd love to. Um, you know, but, but for sure, they've got to, you know, they've got to get in the swing of things and get in the groove and, and find it here pretty soon. To take your less kind of harsh, uh, interpretation of the, the weekend for them, I guess I will say that the, the pace looked really good, especially at a track where they really significantly struggled last year. If you remember, you know, Pato having all sorts of trouble in the race last year at, at St. Pete. So, um, you know, had the strategy played out a little bit differently there, I think, we could have seen a, a much improved Aaron McLaren SP. So I think they're right to be, um, you know, upset at how the weekend played out, but also kind of a little bit buoyant that they've made some improvements and some gains in, in that St. Pete area. Obviously we saw later in the season that St. Pete's not, all, not necessarily always a, a perfect um, representation of what street course 
form is going to be like for the rest of the season. Obviously, it's quite a unique street circuit, isn't it? And it, it might things might work out a little bit differently later in the year. We saw Pato win at Detroit despite having struggled so much at somewhere like St. Pete. So, you know, we, we'll see some variation in the street courses later in the year. But definitely, I felt like Aaron McLaren SP's pace was much improved. felt really sorry for Simon Pagano. I just want to mention him while we're here as well because he was right up there in, in practice and qualifying all the way through pretty much the weekend until the race where he also got pinned on that on that strategy. And, uh, you know, I think if anything he could change about his weekend, he'd, he'd probably change the start because, you know, Pato, Pato, you know, really hung him out to dry in the area where he passed him. And that, that was a big problem for Simon, but also obviously got pinned down on that, um, on that strategy that we, we, you know, that, that really didn't work for, for basically anyone. So that was a bit of a problem. Going back to our preseason podcast, we said it'd be a key year for some drivers who were going to be out of contract at the end of the season. And the two we picked had contrasting weekends, didn't they? Absolutely. Uh, contrasting is is definitely the word. Renus VK had a, a really exciting weekend, didn't he? He was um, he was strong through practice. Um, you know, spoke a lot about in the off season about how he'd you know spent a lot of time working with Matt Barnes and, and basically has a room in his house and has been spending you know loads of time kind of bouncing some ideas around there and, and, and trying to find some some improvement obviously Renus for context had that second half of the season last year after his uh, cycling crash ruled him out of Road America where his form was just really really awful compared to the first half of the season obviously he'd won a race in the first half of the season and then everything kind of all the wheels came off but despite being good at St. Pete last year he was ninth in, in the race last year he still came with a little bit of an improvement I think um, it, it would have been easy to to kind of out all this talk of improvement and then not be able to follow up on that and he, he obviously was through the race which was which was really good to see it's nice to see you know Rena's is one of these people it's very very obvious whether things are going um, whether they're going well or whether they're going badly and it was really obvious that he was happy with how things were going over the course of the weekend seeing him around and being his usual kind of happy self and and you know really pleased with how that team was getting on obviously looking at Alexander Rossi the things were absolutely the, the opposite there at Andretti I think they probably turned up with a with a a kind of a base setup and a car that they were expecting to be a little bit better I think maybe but you know Colton's form last year had given them probably a lot of hope that that they were going to be able to come and be immediately uh, contenders here and obviously in practice they were they were quick with with Roman and, and Colton but Alexander just struggled to, to seem to be able to to put it together this weekend and again another weekend where his comments after his, especially after his qualifying lap, were very similar to last year. Like we're we're slow, but we don't know why we're slow. We don't know what the reasons are. We're we're, we're losing this pace. So it's going to be a long year if Alexander can't step this up now and and, and match Roman and Colton. You know, it was hard enough for, for Alexander to spend the last two years struggling to match Colton, and now he's got Roman in there, who's you know very clearly going to come in and 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 be at a very high level based on what we've seen from the first weekend. So, yeah, I guess keen to get your thoughts on those two drivers because there's, it's, it's easy to have differing opinions on, um, you know, where they're at and, and their form, but uh, it's, it's difficult really to, to, to pull any positives out of that one for yeah, us. Yeah, I would agree. Really? I mean, there was, they, they played, so they, they kind of committed to playing the strategy game from the beginning of the race and it didn't end up playing out for them. So it was, it was hard uh, as everything else was transpiring over the course of the race. It was kind of hard to get a sense of, have they made progress during the race? I mean, it, like, had they been on just the two stop, would they have been there at the end? I don't, I don't really know that. Cause I think that that's, it's tricky when you, you know, when I hear those types of comments, um, it's hard not to feel like it's, it's not really conveying what's actually going on. Like when they're, 
when a driver or a team or an engineer says they don't really know, well, that's sort of not true. Like they, they do know, they know where the time is because they have their teammates data. So they, they do know where they're losing time at least. Um, what they may not know is, you know, whether that time is necessarily all in the driver, whether it's all in the setup, if they, you know, when it starts to get into concerning situations inside teams, it's like, we're running the same setup and he's just as good through the corners. Like he's good in the braking and he's, and you know, they're losing time somewhere else kind of inexplicably, but it's a little, uh, you know, I guess I, I'll be interested to, to, to learn a little bit more about this over the course of the season, because now with Roman and Colton both there, they do have a lot of information to figure this out. And so it's up to them on the, you know, I guess he's in the 27, right. In the, on that, on that timing stand and, and for him as, as a driver to, to kind of sort through getting to a place where they do know the types of things that they can throw at it, whether it's little changes in the way that he's driving the car or it's, you know, the, the small differences either between the, the setups on the, you know, on the 26 and the 28 and, and, and their stuff, or it's, you know, or it's, or it's finding some little things that are going to get, you know, maybe Alex is driving the car differently enough to the way that Colton does that he needs a couple of things to be a little bit different for him to be able to extract the most out of the car for him. So those are all totally normal things to be dealing with inside, you know, within a team, not everybody's going to drive the car exactly the same way, but uh, I guess it's, it's, it's worrisome, I guess, from the outside to kind of see them have this, we have no idea sort of question marks. Like we heard that from Joseph a couple of times towards the end of the year last year that they, after qualifying, you know, they just were kind of nowhere at, at my Portland in particular stands out in my mind. And, um, you know, there, that was just because I think at the end at, at that, in those sessions, they had been really good in practice and then suddenly in qualifying, it just wasn't there. And so it's kind of immediately after the practice session or immediately after the session, he's dumbfounded that he's like, I don't know. I don't know where the, I don't know where the lap time went here. Like we were just expecting for this to be, if it had just been how it was in practice, that we would have been fine. Uh, this seems a little bit different in that they seem like they're, they're searching for it a little bit, just in, in a number of situations where they, where they do kind of have some of that information to fill in the gaps in between. So, um, I'm definitely, it, it makes me curious to, to understand a little bit more where, how they're feeling that way. And, uh, you know, with, with Renus, I think altogether, I, I think frankly, they got, they got lucky that as many people as they, as, as did kind of screwed up the strategy or got caught out by the strategy. They definitely seemed like there was a number of times during this race that it could have gone really badly for Renus because they they definitely did not quite have the same comparing to the other Chevy cars that were up front in willpower and and Scott McLaughlin like they were not in that same zip code of like just really having consistent pace and having you know good fuel economy and being able to make the tire last and all that kind of stuff there were definitely some points where Renus was kind of falling off a cliff but uh, because they because they basically were able to reconfigure their strategy around uh, to to match the two stoppers um they did he obviously must have saved a ton 
um, in that final stint to be able to get to the union on in the second stint, I guess, to just get to the point they were even in the window for the final stint and then managed to do that. Um, so I think sort of a, a Herculean effort to, to make up for maybe their, their losses in other places over the course of the race and, and wind up where they did. Well, Rena's just proved that even if you were basically trash on the red tires, like if they were gone, then if you stuck with that strategy, even if you lost the initial time on that red tire and you were losing places, it would reward you later on because it was the better strategy to be on. And I was so confused that, that more teams didn't take that approach with, you know, the ones who were, who were pitting early. And obviously there's always the worry that you're going to lose the the time on the track on, on, on the red, if you, if you've got no grip and, you know, it's a, it's a concern. I understand that, but, you know, I think, Renish just showed that sometimes you just have to give that time up to to make it back later on. And I, I just wanted to jump in briefly, JR, just very quickly on Rossi and ask about whether you understood his strategy because, you know, we saw Will Power take a podium and he'd started on the, he was one of the only people to start on the hard tyre, right? So the way, the way that strategy should have worked is that he should have done a long first stint, but instead he pitted at the first caution, um, which Rossi didn't do on the same strategy and stayed out. And I just couldn't understand what the thinking was behind that behind that strategy really and wondered if you'd had any insight into to what you think they were trying to do there because it, it seemed like they just kind of uh, you know we'd seen or at that point already we'd seen so many people switch to the three stop that even if Alexander felt like um you know it, his strategy was kind of going to you know not not going to work at that point power had power had pitted and shown that that was kind of the way to go and uh, I just wondered if you thought maybe that was just a mistake there or, or whether there was some sort of thinking there that we hadn't spotted. I think, I guess my, my thinking there, there have been some occasional situations in IndyCar where over the, you know, I mean, I can think of a couple over the course of the last sort of 10 years in road course races like this, where for whatever reason, and at a track like St. Pete where it's really tight and you can get stuck behind a lap car and, or a slower car and just be stuck there for a long period of time, particularly after you, after you burn off, burn the edge off the tire, whether it's reds or blacks at the beginning of a stint, everybody's close enough to the pace that that can definitely happen. We obviously, we saw that happen during, during this event. Um, I guess the thinking there probably when, when they were doing it, I was just figuring, okay, um, they're, get, they're getting track position on all the other two stoppers in addition to three stoppers. So they're kind of holding everybody back by doing that. And they're going to go so long on the first stint that they're going to know for sure. They can just go flat out as a two stopper all the way to the end. Um, maybe, and, and maybe there's a bit of a gamble there, or there's a hope that, the other two stoppers, if it goes to the end without caution, that they're going to have a hard time because that caution came early relative to where those guys were going to want to pit. Um, you know, so Alex extends the first stint long. And at that point, I guess, and, and I am no, I am no IndyCar strategist to be sure, but you're the driver guy at that point. I I'm the driver guy. Let's make sure we're totally clear about Mr. Driver guy to you, Jack, um, that, uh, you know, I guess they're sort of thinking there's a chance here that we somehow end up being the ones that are out in clean air because we're going to be off strategy, even compared to the two stop guys. And that if he can run flat out to the end, that that's valuable relative to the other two stoppers potentially getting caught up with three stoppers and slower cars and just not being able to rip lap time by doing that. St. Pete is a place that, you know, because of the fact that you shortcut the first couple of corners, uh, 
I'm not, not necessarily that it's like advantageous from a pit cycle perspective in terms of time loss, but you know, it's, it is an area where depending on, you know, if, if you manage to somehow just roll the dice there and get it right. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking that they were just taking that gamble because they didn't have a lot else going for them at that point, it, besides the fact that in, in hindsight, if they'd have just pitted with the rest of the leaders at that stage, like they probably would have ended up in the top 10 because all of those cars just cycled to the front time after time. Interesting. Good to get your thoughts on that, Joe. Wanted to to move on to the person who we can never, ever leave off this podcast ever again without uh, serious trouble being sort of ensuing. Marcus Ericsson, it's definitely worth mentioning anyway on this podcast, regardless of whether we have to mention him or not, because uh, he scored the best ninth place finish I've ever seen in my, in my motorsport journalism career. He had a great start, obviously um, one of the top qualifying Ganassis uh, in, in the top 10. Uh, had a good start and I think 20 laps into the race, he set his best lap up to that point um, and he'd started on the softs, which basically the only other person who looked like they had any sort of pace like that was was Scott McGoughan out front really so really impressive first stint from from Marcus something he says he thinks is one of his uh, best attributes is his ability to to look after the tires I did speak to him last night in a, a funny um, sideways anecdote where I'd called him to to chat through what had happened in the race and then um, the the audio that I'd recorded uh, actually corrupted. And then I had to call him again and ask him all the same questions again, which was one of the most embarrassing things that's ever happened to me as a journalist. What yeah, a guy. That's what just proof guy. of what a cool guy Marcus Ericsson is, I think. The first, the first <laughs> interview was in the pool. The second one was uh, just after his dinner, I think. So, uh, yeah, he'd really, uh, he'd, really fitted us, he'd really fitted us in on the pod. So we're really happy about that. Um, but, yeah, um, I, I guess his race was shaping up really nicely at that point and then had the unsafe release penalty, which he thought was a little bit harsh because Graham Ray Hall behind him had been, basically been released at the same time. So Marcus's argument was basically that it wasn't really an unsafe release because they, the, the two cars had been released at the same time. But I guess any incident in the pit lane where there's contact, there has to be a, an unsafe release penalty, basically, automatically. So I guess he was on the receiving end of that. And you can make of what you will, whether you thought that was too harsh or not. But that ruined his race. It put him to the back of the field. One thing I will say, JR, that was a very harsh penalty. Um, I don't know if there's another penalty that they can implement, which is less harsh than that. Um, but but going to the back of the field at that point, is is um, that, that ruins your race, basically, doesn't it? Unless you're Marcus Ericsson, who fought back to ninth place in the race. So <laughs> great result for him in the end. Um, what did you make of Ganassi as a whole, JR? I was kind of interested to get your thoughts on this, because I guess, are you concerned at how bad they they rolled off in practice? They were really struggling for balance, and, and it, it was pretty pretty serious at that time like most of the media didn't see Ganassi for the first two days because they were so kind of um, behind closed doors trying to fix these problems that they'd had in practice and then suddenly um, in, in very Dixon and Ganassi-like fashion they all kind of showed up in the race and were and were good so is, is there any concerns here do you think that we might see um, you know less than less than ideal um, street course setups across the, the season or do you, do you take the the more, I guess, positive outlook that the way that they were able to deal with rolling off the truck poorly is, is an example of what they're going to be able to do for the rest of the season and, and turn things around there. Yeah, I'll take the glass half full approach or <laughs> you know, viewpoint of this for on their behalf. Um, it, it's St. Pete is just kind of an outlier in terms of the way that the cars work there. So I'm not, when anybody in particular shows up and isn't great at St. Pete, particularly when it's the first race of the season, to me, that's not necessarily an indicator of anything in particular going on for the rest of the season or rest of the year. Um, you know, they had different tire, they had a different tire this year that definitely caught people out. 
Um, you know, so I think that we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll judge Ganassi more on the aggregate of their next handful of races. We don't see another, I guess we see, we see another street circuit at Long Beach. So that'll be, that'll be a place that I think we'd expect them just to roll out and be good. If they have issues there, um, then, then this will be a topic of conversation worth digging into a little bit deeper. I do think that the fact that they sorted everything out over the course of the, um, over the course of the next couple of sessions, basically, especially after having Alex crash in the second practice, uh, to be able to haul it up you know, into the top 12. And then, you know, he was as good as any, he was as good. He was the best looking car, frankly, at the end of the race, um, relative to anybody else out there. I think to talk about Marcus briefly, the thing that was, as was particularly impressive to me about his first stint was just that he was in traffic the whole time. You know, I mentioned earlier that St. Pete in particular is a place where you just end up the, the tire, where the tire degradation is pretty significant, even, even on blacks, um, you know, to have Scott McLaughlin out in clean air and able to make it last and have that seem really impressive is one thing, but for Marcus to be able to do the same thing, being well back in the pack and just in dirty air the whole time. I mean, not, I'm not saying he was, he was way back there, but he was just, he was stuck in traffic. He was behind guys, trying to make moves, trying to get around guys that were having their cars and their tires going off. That's to me much more impressive, frankly, than, than McLaughlin being able to do it. And, um, you know, otherwise I think they, they both, you know, Marcus basic, just for the sake of context, Marcus basically ended up because of the pit lane penalty ended up on the same go long on the second two stints for a super short final stint, like Dixon did basically. Um, and that just ended up netting those guys cleaner air than the other sort of three stoppers or, or whatever the other guys that were off strategy compared to the leaders. I think that ended up, you went, you ended up being able to see basically that all three of those cars in Polo, um, Scott and Marcus just able to make good on the pace that the cars had by the time they got to the race. So it definitely appears as though they got it figured out and we're, we're plenty good by the end in terms of the unsafe release. I sort of agree. I, I don't, I don't disagree generally with the decision that something should be done there to, I mean, IndyCar is definitely, they mentioned it on the broadcast. They're definitely, uh, particularly, um, tight on making sure that these things don't happen. Um, they've made some changes as we mentioned earlier in the year or in the preseason podcast, just, you know, you can't be pushing the car out of the pit lane. They're trying to trying to keep exposed personnel basically safer in the pit as safe as they can be in the pit lane and, and doing, making little adjustments every year to find ways that they can make that even better. Um, I, I personally, you know, I don't have a strong opinion about this, but I personally thought that, you know, Marcus was the lead car basically in that whole scenario. I didn't, I didn't get the feeling watching the replay that he was just going straight for the outside lane. Um, he was leaving, you know, there's only two lanes in the pit lane. Basically he was leaving the outside lane for Graham. Graham was the one that not, and not like, I think it's really his fault either, but he was the one that was sort of getting sandwiched between Roma and, and Marcus. So I guess I'm, I'm also partial to the idea that that seemed like a, a sort of extreme um, reprimand for, uh, for Marcus and the eight crew. But um, in a general sense, you know, I think the fact that they turned it around by the time the race came around, they were among the strongest cars during the race. 
uh, you know, I don't, I expect that we'll see them just starting weekends at the front from here on out. Yeah. I think it's worth mentioning at this point as well that we, that we haven't done about Marcus so far is that the, basically the key thing for him, if he's going to be a championship contender is that he needs to improve his qualifying. And we've heard this for, for two years now. I know it's not an old topic, but to turn up in St. Pete and, uh, you know, be, Almost the, the top Ganassi. I think actually mistakenly I'd said that Alex Pillow um, had qualified where Marcus did before eighth. Um, Alex was tenth, but um, Marcus Ericsson needs to be qualifying inside the top ten if he's going to win the championship. There's, on average, I mean, um, there's really you're not going to win a championship unless you're qualifying in the top ten on average. So um, he he wasn't really. Um, uh, especially the first half of the season, I think um, from memory, that was where um, last season was a bit more of a struggle. Obviously started to de- deliver the results second half of the year. And we've seen these amazing comeback drives from him, haven't we? I think um, a lot of the drivers saving fuel in the last stint, to your point as well, JR, um, on, on those guys pitting later, obviously a lot of the drivers around them were saving fuel as well. So they, they, they weren't saving fuel and a lot of drivers were around them. So that was another thing that kind of um, alleviated them. But yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, just to just to point out that the, the qualifying performance is good for Marcus, and that's something that he's going to have to replicate through the year, and something that is another reason why he was so happy with the weekend as a whole, even if things hadn't worked out that well. He still, he still said it was one of his best IndyCar weekends, and I can kind of see why he means that because just from a fundamental driving point of view and getting all of the things that you need to do right in IndyCar, he did pretty much everything correctly. And really, it was the it was that penalty, wasn't it, that really um, stopped him from finishing higher up, maybe on the podium, even. Yeah, definitely, I totally agree, and. Uh... No, I mean, it's uh, like you said, I mean, his, his qualifying performances were, those were the main things that you could at least point out on the stat sheet relative to his teammates that were both in the championship hunt. That was the biggest difference. And so for him to come out this weekend, when it, all things considered, like we've just touched on, didn't seem like an assy were on top form for them right away uh, for him to be able to stick it in the top, top 12 and um, you know, beat a lot of guys that we expected to be up there and be right in the mix among his teammates and, and do all the things that they do well over the course of the race, unfortunately with, with a penalty that just took him out of contention, you know, that's, that's another, uh, strong sign for those guys moving forward. Well, that's all for this week's IndyCar podcast. If you have any questions for Jack and I leave us a question and a review on your favorite podcast platform of choice, or hit us up on Twitter. We're both there. Congrats to Scott McLaughlin and team Penske. We'll be back soon with another IndyCar podcast.